0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 115. In this episode, we're talking about post-Shoah theology with Reverend Dr. Mark Lindsay. Reverend Dr. Mark Lindsay is Joan F. W. Munro Professor of Historical Theology at Trinity College, Melbourne and an Anglican priest in the diocese of Melbourne. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this penultimate episode in our Christian Anti-Judaism series, we turn to talk about post-Shoah theology, thinking constructively and theologically about our our Christian faith and Christian doctrines in the light of the Holocaust. And our conversation was quite wide ranging and covered a lot of ground. Chris, Josh, and Daniel, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Reverend Dr. Lindsay?
1: What is intriguing about our, our conversation Uh, with Reverend Dr. Lindsay is, uh, I think, his explanation of uh, the doctrine of revelation and and how that leans into promise and confirmation as opposed to promise and fulfillment uh, in in the language that that he displays. Uh, And then also, I think that he touches on some of the 20th century anti-Semitic grammar that uh, was uh, predominant. Uh, within uh, some mainline Protestant traditions, uh, and it gives us context to um, some of the anti-Semitic themes that we might continue to see leading out of the 20th century into to where we are today. Yeah, I really appreciate just the breadth
2: of conversation that we've had here, uh, stemming from those early days of uh, the post-New Testament early church, extending right through to the 20th century, and and really considering. Many of the the systemic and systematic points of uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish uh, influence that have been have been had over the, over the centuries, it's really hard to pick out any one point uh, which has led to the situation that we find ourselves in. But considering them all together gives us an insight and into not just the the situation that we find ourselves in, but a possible way forward.
3: Yeah, I really appreciate how Dr. Lindsay placed everything in context, and then gave us a way forward, especially as we get practical with our preaching and teaching, Uh, being in church ministry, that was, it was insightful to hear the anti-Semitic roots of the things that we inherited, and to be aware of those and and preach and teach and and be
0: mindful of them. And with that, here's our conversation with Reverend Dr. Mark Lindsay. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Reverend Dr. Lindsay. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So in this conversation, we want to think a bit about post-Shoah theology, thinking about our theology in the light of the Holocaust. And can you help us set some context by providing us with a little bit of an overview of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism prior to uh, the 20th century? Yeah, sure. Thank you.
4: Let me start in 1965, and I'll work backwards and then we'll work forwards from there again. Um, So 1965, obviously, is the promulgation at the Second Vatican Council of Nostra Aetate. Uh, This was a seminal document not without its flaws, um, but it was a seminal document for the church, both within and beyond Rome. For the simple reason that it was the first official uh, statement um, declaring uh, that there was no justification for the charge of the historic charge of deicide uh, and that the Jewish people, as such, um, neither the people of biblical Israel nor post biblical Israel, uh, can be held collectively responsible for. For the death of Jesus. The reason that's important is because that was, at the broad brush level, an assumption that governed much of both official and popular understandings of the way in which the church ought to engage with post biblical Jews and Judaism. So that really is the um, interpretive prism, I guess, through which much of two thousand years of Christian theologies of Israel uh, have been have been read. So, if you if you then rush backwards to millennia, it becomes possible to see why it, you know it, it's an early intervention into uh, post. New Testament writings that we that we start to see the, the, um, the emergence of particularly anti Jewish um, sentiments within within the Christian literature. So um, the epistle to Barnabas um, is a good example of that. It's usually referred to as one of the earliest, if not the earliest explicitly supersessionist writings. But then you have a whole lot of increasingly outraged rhetoric from within the post new testament corpus against the jews as such you see this for example depending on you know when you date it whether you date it mid second century or or as late as as the third century the martyrdom of polycarp where where the jews are collectively regarded as being the people who are putting Polycarp, you know, the venerable bishop to death, just as they did with with Jesus, you know, a couple of centuries before. Now, as I say, it doesn't really matter when you date that particular text. The fact is, well before we hit Nicaea, you've got um, writings that start to become in their own way, venerated within the Christian corpus that are explicitly collectivising the Jewish people, not only for their past um, sin of deicide, but also, therefore, for their their continuing collective assault against uh, Christians individually and the church generally. The, The logic of it seems to be that, um, this is simply what we can expect of these people. They've already shown their colours, uh, and insofar as they've now put to death Polycarp or any of the other martyrs, they're simply acting according to type. That, that trajectory just continues really right through. You see it in the writings of Thomas Aquinas, you see it in the writings of Duns Scotus, um, both of whom have nuanced understandings of. Jews as such, but ultimately they're working off the same play sheet, which is this is a type of person who has been fundamentally thrown out of the covenant community. And they're all they're all caught up in that. That frankly remains the at least the popular understanding that then informs preaching it informs um the way in which theology is done um, post-enlightenment uh, the, the jews become a cipher for evil and a cipher for the activity of uh, of the demonic in the world um, this is not finally repudiated as an interpretive symbol until 1965. It, it takes different forms, obviously, uh, not not every Christian writer, not every Christian preacher, not every Christian theologian um, articulates it in the same way, but the trajectory of that view is inescapable and it's unmissable when you start looking for it. This is why someone like uh, Rosemary Radford Ruther in what was a a seminal book at the time, Faith and Fratricide. Um, it's 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 old now. I think it's um in many respects been overtaken by, by later scholarship. But that's the reason why in that book she makes the claim that that anti-Semitism is actually an intrinsic ingredient to the Christian tradition. You cannot have normative Christianity without the intrusion of anti-Semitism as as part and parcel of what it is to articulate the Orthodox Christian faith, which is why she effectively turns her back on that and seeks to reconstitute whatever it is Christianity is through different categories Uh, because anti-Semitism, in her view, is just such
0: a fundamental aspect of the Christian tradition. Could you also give us a little bit of a sketch throughout church history of different ways of kind of construing supersessionism, whether explicitly or implicitly, uh, perhaps with a little bit of a a spectrum of hard supersessionism to soft supersessionism and the different ways that that was sort of articulated uh, throughout church history? Let me me try and bring together a couple
4: of very, very different figures, if I may. (laughs) One is Marcion, and the other is, surprise you if I say this, but go with me for a bit. Um, the other is David Novak. Why am I putting these two together? Well, good question. Um, so obviously Marcion's whole, whole beef is, you know, a dualistic um, uh, cosmology, um, uh, two different gods revealed through two different uh, scriptures, um, and therefore the need to um cleanse, if you like, um any sense of Christian ecclesial heritage um coming out of a Jewish tradition um, by necessity, because you you're you're talking about two entirely different divinities. Marcion gets anathematized, but the flavor of his thought continues on. There continues to be from, from the time of Marcion on an increasingly concerted effort on the part of the church to separate itself rhetorically and in any other in every other way that matters uh, from any sense of jewishness as its as its foundational heritage there's been some work done on the prevalence of of loincloths in statuary and icons from very early on why is it that we always see um, in crucifixes um, the figure of Jesus wearing a loincloth. Well, because if you take the loincloth away, you would see that he's circumcised, and we don't want to see that. Um, we want to hide any um, reminder that actually we owe our religious tradition to something that's you know, to, to that to that to that Jewish to that Jewish root. This is this is why that form of hard supersessionism becomes so attractive so early uh, because you don't need actually to continue on a Jewish heritage. You are establishing something entirely new. You're you're not simply building a second story on top of foundations. The the New Testament is precisely that. It's a novum in the way in which God is relating to humanity to the point that everything that goes before can effectively be, um, be done away with. Bring in David Novak, who argues um, that at some level, we ought to be prepared to think about the legitimacy of what he calls a soft supersessionism. Um, now, there are two types of soft supersessionism that he refers to. One is a supersessionism that allows um, Judaism continue as within their Jewishness up until the second coming, at which point the coming of the kingdom is the final conversion of Israel so that they end up being saved, but they're saved as Jews turned Christians. So we don't have to worry about evangelizing them now because God will do that work at the end of the age. Um, and every Jew who is saved will be saved, not as a Jew, but as a converted, as a, as, as a, as a Jew converted into Christianity. But that's God's work, not ours. And so we can, we can shelve evangelistic missions to the, uh, to the Jews. That's a form of soft supersessionism that has become somewhat tolerable um, in the last, 20 or so years david novak says there's a completely different sort of soft supersessionism which is far more legitimate so the problem with that first form is it still um, understands judaism and jews as people as um, potential christians so the language of um, promise and fulfillment still remains on the table judaism is only fulfilled once it becomes Christianity. <laughs> um, there is, however, a soft supersessionism that, um, that Novak advocates that actually the both rabbinic Judaism and post-apostolic Christianity are both nova. They are both new covenants. Emerging from a common ground, the common ground being the what Novak calls Hebrew monotheism, which is what we have in um, Hebrew Bible as interpreted through second Temple Judaism. so that's the common ground Judaism is not that Christianity is not that they both share that as a foundation but are Evolving from that in their own traject- trajectories. Um, so, in a sense, they're both superseding what came before. See, so the problem with supersessionist language is it, is it assumes a chronology of one comes after the other. Um, in this form, you have two religious communities developing in parallel, as it were, superseding their precursor, which they share.
2: Thanks, Mark. Um, uh, it strikes me that that uh, sort of relationship between uh, Judaism and Christianity then uh, is the pigeon pair to the, uh, the Judenfrag, um, the, the Jewish question that was posed in the 19th century about what's the place of Jews in this world in relationship to Christianity, as opposed to what's Christianity's relationship to uh, Judaism, uh, especially Karl Marx's concept of it, where uh, he believed that uh, the Jews should give up their ethnic and uh, racial identity and just simply integrate uh, as Europeans um, and disappear into the broader culture by becoming Christian. Uh, it strikes me that that is an inverse to, uh, that is one solution to that. Um, to the to the relationship by by just devol- dissolving the relationship entirely in favour of one party, um, it becomes quite problematic in that way.
4: Yeah, and you have people like Calvin who uh, who would say actually the church needs the presence of of uh, the Jewish people. I, I don't accept his rationale for this, um, but one of the common threads within Reformed theology is. Uh, the, the Jews hold up a mirror to the church as to the state of the whole of humanity. So when we denigrate the Jews for their sinfulness, what we are actually doing is um, pointing the finger back at ourselves. We just don't realize it. The the Jews become necessary, therefore, as a sort of scapegoating mechanism so that we can blame everyone else. Uh, we can blame them rather rather than blaming ourselves for our own Um, Predicament. Um, So, in that sense, both Judaism and Jewish people, we we don't want them to disappear. We need them to remain um, present amongst us as a reminder of who we are and who Christ has overcome for us, right? While, While Marx might want Jews to simply disappear. Theologically, that's not been the, the dominant paradigm, seems to me. In, in terms of the question that Jews pose to Christians, it's actually a Christological question because we cannot understand who or what the Jews are for the church if we're not prepared to ask to what extent do we take the Jewishness of Jesus seriously? You know, and, and, and insofar as we don't recognise Jesus' necessary Jewishness, we're, we're actually falling into a sort of semi-Docetic Christology. So rushing forward a little bit to, uh, to what Karl Barth has to say, Jesus' Jewishness is not a contingent aspect of his of 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 the incarnation, it's a necessary aspect. Um, he's not Jewish, but in God's providence, could have been something else. There is a necessity to the to the Jewishness of the incarnation. Um, so the moment that we remove that, or, or water that down, or try, like statuary and iconography does, to hide. Jesus Jewishness behind a veil, um, we are ceasing to take um, actually the, that fullness of his humanity seriously, um, which, is a, which is a major problem uh, for, for the church. And if we do that, then we cannot genuinely ask the question, how do Jews and Christians relate to one another? So I think, I think we, we are forced back we are forced back to Christology.
3: Thanks for that. I, I'd I'd be interested in just kind of revisiting what you're talking about as the Jews become a cipher for evil and demonic activity in the world, especially when I think about power dynamics and, you know, when people are in power, they need an enemy and they pick up people or a group and Jews always seem to be that scapegoat, that, that people group. And it's kind of ingrained in history, in Christian history throughout so it's kind of an easy an easy illustration sometimes of like for these early preachers and different things like that to point to them almost kind of an aspect of like when Jesus was on the cross, he was cleansed of his Jewishness and then became fully clean. And now he represents Christians now. So when we're thinking about the cipher for evil and the cipher for the spiritual and demonic activity, how does that carry over into the 20th century? How does uh, you know, we can think of Hitler pretty easily, that kind of different thing, but what are other aspects that kind of led up to Holocaust and um, just the heightening of that when, when a power dynamic?
4: Sure. The Holocaust happens in, in Germany at, at one level Germany was the least, least likely place for something like that to happen. It was not the, uh, the country in Europe that was most riven by anti-Semitic uh, fervor in the second half of the 19th century, you would have you know, most most observers would have um, would have pointed to places like uh, like Russia or France as being the most likely place for some sort of genocidal um, pogrom to take place against uh, against the Jews, but through the 19th century. The figure of the of the Jew takes on um, a mystique it takes on an otherness that I think is overlaid with the increasing popularity of racial sciences, um, the, you know, the attempt to classify um, humanity into a um, into an ordered chain of um, of ethnic groups and where the different um you know where slavic folks sat different depending on who was doing the categorizing where um indigenous people sat depended depend on on who was doing the categorizing but universally the figure of the jew was down the bottom of the chain what hitler does and what what it's not so much Hitler, it's people like Houston Stuart Chamberlain who comes before him um, uh, and uh, but what the what the nazified version of racial science does is take um, the Jewish person not just to the bottom of the chain of humanity but below the chain entirely so they slip off the the, the, the normal categories of of humankind but there is this, sense of scientific legitimacy going on through, through people like J.K. Lavatar, um, Carl Linnaeus, other, other folk like that who are, who are providing what they would regard as being empirical categories of, um, of observable reality to, to why we can um, determine the following types of, of of ethnic groups in their um, in their relative inferiority or superiority, and the Jewish person has always historically in Europe been um, been the outsider. Um, so it's not a great leap of logic to superimpose this pseudoscience onto. Um, an underlying popular assumption anyway, once you start to then overlap you know overlay that with with international conflict and and war uh, and then unexpected loss in war, the trajectory of demonization and scapegoating and blame has already been laid out before you um, you've already predetermined who the who the who the um who the accused is going to be Um, it's just that you may well have thought that that would probably take place in france rather than germany but the same uh the same mentality of the jew as the outsider the jew as the um the one who cannot be trusted we see this in dreyfus affair um is already ingrained Within within the substrata of European culture, this is the point that 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 Daniel Goldhagen made in nineteen ninety seven with his book Hitler's Willing Executioners. He's right in identifying a centuries old tradition of deeply ingrained cultural enmity towards. Uh, everything Jewish, where he overstretched his argument was by saying that it was also um, deeply ingrained and necessarily ingrained to some sort of collective German consciousness that wasn't true of the other European countries. Um, The reality is it was true of the other European countries. That it happened in that the Holocaust ends up happening in Germany is due to a whole lot of other uh, um, uh, factors, uh, but it could have been elsewhere.
3: And was the church and the church uh, meshed with political and government things like that? Was that the vehicle that enmeshed all of that deeply ingrained anti-Semitism?
4: Look, in my view, in my view, yes. So, back in the 1990s, where you have the historian's debate, the historic astrite, that trying to work out why it was that the Holocaust happened, and why did it happen in Germany. Uh, and there are two uh, there are two parallel threads to this uh, to this debate. On the one hand, there's uh, there are the arguments around whether, Uh, The Holocaust was something that that Hitler and his leading henchmen had always planned from perhaps as far back as 1919, and they intentionally followed it through um, to the bitter end, Uh, and everything that happened in in Nazi policy from 1919 through to 1945 was deliberately um, programmed towards that end, That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's the more structuralist, functionalist view that says the Holocaust happened by fits and starts um, and it was incremental uh, and was largely due not to any master strategy, but it was due to officials at lower levels of the Nazi hierarchy listening to the rhetoric and then taking their own decisions thinking that they were doing what their Fuhrer was wanting them to do without there actually being a specific plan for them to do that. That's one side of the debate. The other side of the debate is um, was there anything specific in Germany's history that led to this? Is there a Sonderweg? Is there a special historical trajectory that Germany went on that no other country did that meant that the Holocaust was somehow um, historically inevitable. I don't buy that um, because I don't, I don't, um, I don't buy into historic inevitability at all. Frankly, at the same time, you can't deny that there are um, deeply ingrained um, motifs of of anti-Semitism within traditional lutheranism um uh, yes well, spoken earlier about nos and the reason why that's so important is because um of the centuries of catholic teaching around this but but within the german context specifically you you cannot get away from um from a lutheran um Heritage of of antipathy towards uh, towards Judaism and all things Jewish. Um, it, and frankly, it doesn't matter whether Martin Luther meant for his um, pro- proposals about what to do with Jews. It doesn't matter whether you think he intended them to be taken seriously or enacted literally. Um, the fact is they they constituted the grammar of um popular lutheran piety and popular religious life in germany from the 16th century through to the 20th century and once you have the church as fundamentally um, an organ of the state the consequences of that are not inevitable but they are made far more likely as as you know the lutheran Church. In particular, in Germany, has always had a fraught relationship with the state. Um, It's never quite felt able, at least up until um, the second half of the 20th century, um, Lutheranism has never quite felt able to challenge the authority of the state machinery to do what it thinks needs to be done, um, which in the context of Nazism, simply made it um, a a passive um, acquiescer to what was being done. That combined with that that anti-Semitic grammar that that is shot through not just Lutheranism, but Protestantism more generally um, from, from at least the Reformation, Meant meant that the, the churches were ill equipped, um, both theologically and in terms of their public political stance, to do anything other than sit back and watch as events unfolded.
1: You mentioned Reverend Doctor Lindsay. You you mentioned uh, uh, the the place of grammar, uh, anti semitic grammar. When you think about it in the context of the twentieth twentieth century. Uh, what would you say in your opinion, has been some of the thematic anti-semitic grammar that we've seen continue throughout and uh, is are there predominant traditions within uh, within Protestantism if you've seen um, that kind of fan the flames of of anti-Semitism?
4: So if you were to pin that down to specific doctrinal loci, um, I would say that uh, the the ways in which much of um, traditional mainstream Protestantism has um, has articulated its understandings of uh, revelation, um, election, certainly questions around well predestination and and election sort of sit, sit together, but also providence. Uh, these are these are loci where I think that uh, that fundamentally anti-Semitic grammar comes to the fore. So, in terms of in terms of doctrines of revelation, again I mentioned earlier uh, this this lingering set of terms around promise and fulfilment. The the old is is fulfilled by the new. Someone like Paul van Buren would argue we're better off talking about promise and confirmation, that in terms of the way in which God has revealed himself through uh, faith communities and through scriptures, what we see in the New Testament in the church is not a fulfillment of what is there in the Hebrew Bible, but but a confirmation of it. Because again, Fulfillment carries with it echoes of um, of chronological development, as though something extra had to, had to be added in to fill up the gap. You know, there's a there's a there's a really interesting um, encounter that that in 1962, Karl Barth had with uh, the American Jewish uh, philosopher Michael Wischigrod. uh Wiśniewski spoke to bart and said you talk about promise and fulfillment that's the language that you use in my tradition a promise is never without the fulfillment already embedded within it you don't have to wait for the fulfillment of the promise until something else happens when god promises something it comes with the fulfillment already ingredient to it um, I think it's a really interesting and helpful way about, uh, of, of re, uh, reframing these sorts of language uh, linguistic terms that we often use in relation to our understanding of, uh, of God's manner of revelation. Election also is an obvious, uh, um, an obvious example in which what I've called this anti-Semitic grammar comes into play because, again, it is traditionally shot through with insider-outsider uh, categories, um, and there is a way for the outsider to become an insider, but it's only by becoming one of us, um, which means you need to stop being who you are. There, there,
2: there's, there's an evangelistic colonialism to that, um, that degree of, of evangelistic colonialism uh, where in order to be uh, one of us, you must give up the previous identity that is held. Um, so firstly, just putting the cards on the table, I find that problematic both from a, a theological and a social psychological point of view. Um, but it strikes me that um, this is where David Novak's uh, perspective that uh, both of the, uh, of the, both Christianity and uh Post Temple Judaism are both new covenants Nova, mm. you know, of their own right, actually works well in terms of them both being part of a superordinate identity structure. Uh, so rather than there being a transference from one subgroup to another, there is actually a greater uh, superordinate identity uh, to which both are subscribing, uh, to which both have, have to. Uh, be incorporated within it is not as if christianity or judaism are simply incorporated wholeless into a the final identity construction but both are uh, incorporated and transformed uh, and it's and and biblically it strikes me that that's that could mirror what paul is talking about in romans uh, that there is that final incorporation
4: so again let me let me go back if i may to um uh to what Bart says in in CD 22 um, He speaks consistently throughout the doctrine of the of election, of the electing God, as Yahweh Kurios, with with both names being proper to the God who who elects, um, and that duality of name, is mirrored for Bart in. The duality of the communities that form the elect community that is the elect community is not Israel it is not the church it is the one community of Israel church now you can you can argue um so who's who's part of that um, but what I like about that construction is that neither is subsuming the other they are they are there as equal participants by grace in the one body of the elect and you cannot have the one without the other in the same way that um that bart would say the god of the hebrews is none other than the father of jesus christ and the father of Jesus Christ is none other than the God of Israel. You cannot separate them, nor can you separate the communities that are bound in solidarity with that God through the Jewish Jesus. I'm not saying that Bart does this especially well, but I think that's the intent of his move. And this is why, uh, so um, 1995, um, Eberhard Busch um, produced a very large uh, tome looking at Karl Barth's um, engagement with the Jewish Christian question during the 12 years of Nazi rule. And the title of the book is Unter dem Bogen des einen Bundes, Under the Covering of the One Covenant. Um, and that I think speaks really neatly um, to that uh, to that that idea towards which Barnes' doctrine of election is trying to reach. There is not only no need to repudiate one's past; you you mustn't. But what you must do is recognize that in your Jewishness or in your Gentile Christianity, you exist necessarily in solidarity with the other. And the linchpin of that solidarity is the singular Jew of Jesus Christ. That's all been really interesting.
3: I just wondered, what's the way forward as we preach, as we teach, as we engage in this conversation further? What do we need to be aware of, and uh, what do we need to be watching for?
4: So this is where I guess, as a theologian um, and as someone interested in the development of the church over the centuries, I do want to um, tentatively, but intentionally, reach back um, into the scriptures. Seems to me when you read, particularly a letter like Ephesians, and let's for the moment assume that. It's Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, he has two fundamental social groups that he's that he's talking about. the The dividing wall that is broken down by Christ is the wall between Jews and Gentiles. Or we could take that further and say the wall between Jews and a Gentile church. That's the fundamental distinction with all other, sociological um, um and demographic distinctions sitting under that somehow but that's the that's the wall that's that's broken down and if we um, want to hope that all other divisions between people can similarly be broken down and have been broken down in Christ then this is the this is the proof of it so there is something, it seems to me, at least in Paul's understanding, that that lifts up these categories of Israel and church as, as being of fundamental significance. So going forward, let me, let me put this in terms of, broadly speaking, three schools of post-Holocaust theology that I think we've seen develop. Um, and to wax and wane over the last um, fifty or sixty years, the, the first to emerge was a school of thought within uh, the Christian Academy uh, that simply wanted to repudiate everything that the Church had done, particularly under Nazism, and view that and, and 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 judge the Church as fundamentally apostate. That may have been right and proper, but that particular group, and I'm thinking here of people like Franklin Littell, who did some wonderful pioneering work, but he didn't actually go beyond the repudiation. He didn't go beyond the word of judgment. Uh, Then you had a second uh, school or movement that also took uh, the Shoah seriously. It took that word of judgment seriously, but took it so seriously that normative traditional Christianity had effectively to be thrown out the window. And this, I think, is what we see, certainly in the early um, Rosemary Radford Ruther, um, that one needs to simply start again. That's equally unhelpful, actually, (laughs) for anyone who wants to... Be and live and and work uh, as a disciple and as a Christian and as a Christian scholar. Um, then there was a third movement that I think was typified by people, as I've mentioned, like Paul Van Buren uh, and Dietrich Ritchel, who took the word of judgment seriously, took seriously the need to reconsider fundamental. Grammar and linguistic terms and categories that had um, been embedded within our formulation of doctrine. But instead of throwing it all out and starting again, simply said what we need to do is do our constructive theology um, with the shadow of our schwitz behind us, conscious that it is there, conscious that it is always representative of an open wound between jews and christians conscious that it needs to inform how we do our theological work and our pastoral work without thereby sacrificing the fundamentals of what it is to be a christian we don't actually need to throw out christology we don't need to throw out the doctrine of election Um, we don't need to do away with the concept of of What we need to do is rework our our understandings of these in the light of that fundamental wound. Moving forward, what I'd love to see, what I think is needed, is a re-recognition. And this is why I began where I began. A re-recognition of the, the critical importance of this relationship between jews and christians israel and the church seems to me that and and i know that this will make me sound anachronistic but it seems to me that much of the modern theological task has been overtaken by a whole lot of other interests and concerns valid though they are i don't think we can afford to lose sight of what at least to my reading, seems to be this basic category of Israel and the church, Jews and Christians. We do need to wrestle with that and continue to do so. And that will include a continuing work of repentance and repair on the part of the church. Um, There are plenty of studies now that, um, that show that in the broader community, um, in, in countries like England and, uh, and Australia, and my guess is also in the US, there's a generation that has grown up that knows nothing of the Holocaust. So we need to be mindful that this fundamental wound, as Dietrich Ritchell puts it, um, is now something that is outside the experience and understanding of, of a new generation of Christians. So they, So we need to be conscious about continuing that repair, that that work of repair and repentance. That's not a that's not a negative judgment. That's a judgment that's full of opportunity and promise and full of potential. Uh, and I think that there are plenty of really creative theologians at work at the moment, people like um, Katharina von Kellenbach and Bjorn Krondorfer and others who are doing some really interesting constructive work building on what they've taken out of Shoah studies um, and embedding that within not just the work of the
0: Christian academy, but within the work of the church as a whole. Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for all of your insights and for that charge that, that you gave us to think constructively about our theological concepts without abandoning them, but keeping in mind that open wound is you, as you talked about. So thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, <music>